The situation is fluid, people. Buckle up. Motley Fool Money starts now. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Good to be here with you guys. What, what, what is this physical togetherness? I, I, it's fantastic. What's going on? Yeah. We got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Nell Minow is our guest. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. The U.S. economy added 311,000 jobs in February. The report reflected higher participation and higher wages. And Jason, I'll just start with you. We're, we're going to stick with the big macro for a while here, but just when it comes to this report, maybe not a big surprise that one of the first reactions out of this report went immediately to the Federal Reserve, people talking about, well, what is this portend for the next interest rate hike? Will it be half a point, quarter point, that sort of thing? But in terms of the jobs report, this was another strong report. Yeah, it was a strong report. It does it does look like a lot of the growth is really attributable to services, leisure, hospitality. I mean, obviously a market that got hit really hard here over the last several years. It, it does. It feels like at least in, in regard to interest rate policy and what we've seen the Fed doing here over the past year in in, in relation to how the economy is responding. A lot of people want instant results, right? I think we live we live in this day and age where everybody wants everything instantly, right? You buy things online, you want it shipped same day. You buy something online, you want to be able to stream it right then and there. Oh yeah, and, and so it does feel like I mean, at least in regard to the financial media and many of us, it's like, well, the Fed is going to push interest interest rates up by fifty basis points. We want to see the results of that tomorrow, right? We want to see the outcome of that sooner rather than later. And I think in this case, you know, it, it it pays to be patient, and part of that really is just to, due to the nature of what what we've been dealing with here, right? I mean, we weren't necessarily in a credit crisis; uh, we've been in sort of a cash flush flush crisis, right? Everybody's been flush with cash, and we're trying to ultimately cycle a a just tremendous amount of money that's been added to the system over the last few years. We're trying to cycle that money out, and that does take time, and that means that these interest rate decisions aren't going to have an immediate impact as they possibly could if it was a credit crisis. But but definitely something that I think is delaying Challenges that we see in the employment market. I think we will start to see those challenges appear. It's just going to be a little bit more slowly. And I think, honestly, we're just really starting to see those challenges begin to appear now. Yeah, I agree with that, Jason. And I think the reason investors are hanging on all these data points is because the Fed's come out and said we're data dependent. Yeah. And so we're just hyper aware now of the jobs report, CPI, PPI, whatever a Fed governor happens to say to some media source. Uh, I think with the jobs report, if we go back to that just for a second, I think there were a lot of questions about that January number going back, where it was you know over 500,000. Is that real? Is that just a seasonal blip? And you know, if you look at the downward revisions to January and December. There were some downward revisions, but not much. 34,000 jobs across two months. I think a lot of investors thought there were going to be more downward revisions there. And so then you get another print here in February above 300,000. There's no way you can conclude 
that the job market is weak. I mean, it is it's strong. It's it's showing that we have a vibrant economy. People are getting hired. There seems to be there's still more jobs than there are people looking for jobs. Um, and if that's the case, you've got this weird situation now where the Fed kind of has to keep their you know their foot on the pedal. Because the economy remains strong. Well, and wages are keeping up too, right? Yes. I mean, right, the four four point six percent growth in, in average hourly earnings. I mean, that's cooled off a little bit, but that's still no, that's still. still impressive. I mean, yes. even though we're we're dealing with uh, you know some historically very high inflation rates. I mean, again, it kind of goes back to the consumer still having some cash, still having the ability to spend some, and so we're just slowly but surely seeing that cycle through. It just it takes some time. This doesn't happen often, but the jobs report got overshadowed by another story, um, and this requires some setup because it involves a bank that uh, probably a lot of people are not as familiar with, or maybe not have not even heard of until this week. But on Wednesday, Silicon Valley Bank announced it was looking to raise more than two billion dollars after suffering a massive loss on asset sales. On Thursday, shares of Silicon Valley Bank fell 60% as depositors rushed to pull their money out of the bank. Friday morning, shares fell another 60% before trading was halted. And then SVB was closed by regulators with the FDC promising that insured depositors will have access to their money no later than Monday morning. Let me just timestamp the conversation that we're having right now. We are recording this. It is early Friday afternoon. Depending on when people are listening to this, the story probably would have changed. Um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that a, a larger uh, bank steps in and maybe buys them. Although, uh, you know, what this bank is worth now is anybody's guess. Um, and and again, this is unfolding as we're talking. But Matt, this is this is raising a lot of questions, including what is the exposure for the rest of the financial sector? Yes, great question. Yeah, this story is going to be very fluid, right? I mean, we're it's going to go through the weekend. We're going to learn a lot about by Monday what's what's ultimately happens to all the assets uh, for this bank. But the story that's not changing that we should be knowing going into this was we had a period forever of zero to low interest rates. Credit was easy. A bank like Silicon Valley Bank benefited extraordinarily from that from that era. They were lending to startups. They were they were flush with VC money. A lot of tech companies parked their capital there. You know, did business with, with Silicon Valley Bank. This was a symptom of the times changed. Interest rates rose. All of a sudden, these profitless tech companies, these venture capital companies, bad companies, were, were taking their money out. I was looking at this uh, number. I can't believe it. Uh, since the second quarter of 2022, so really a few months after the Fed started raising rates last year, up until the end of the year, $34 billion was pulled out of SVB's uh, non-interest-bearing deposits. Those are mostly checking accounts. Um, I guarantee you that, of course, accelerated into this year. Um, that's massive. And so, the question I have, and you asked it, Chris, which, which is right: Is this just isolated to SVB Financial, is the holding company for Silicon Valley Bank, or is this symptomatic of a, of, a, of a greater problem? And I would only I'd point to other things, not just tech companies, but look at or crypto, but look at um, commercial real estate and all the the money that's being backed, you know, by office buildings that are now empty. What about car loans that are expensive now? What about credit cards that are at all-time highs, balances? There are cracks I think in the financial system and this is this is an you know, uh, this comes out of the Fed raising rates as, as aggressively as they have. Yeah, I, I do think. I mean, that is the question, right? Is this something is this indicative of a bigger problem that we can expect to ripple through the system and 
I, I, based on what we know today, I hope, I, I think, and I mean, I certainly hope the answer is no. When you look at Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, ultimately, I, like I would say, its competitive advantage over the last decade plus is that it's been the one funding and banking all of these firms that many others simply wouldn't or couldn't. Right? right? They were willing to take on that risk. They were a bit more of a specialty bank in that regard. So it kind of reminded me. A little bit of Markel Insurance in that regard as a specialty right performer. I mean, they did something that most others couldn't do. Now that comes with clear risks, and we we've always enjoyed Markel because year in and year out, they just write such good business. You see through their combined ratios that they know what they're doing, and it seemed that this really the SVB knew what they were doing as well. But the problem is they ran into a buzzsaw here in regard to, like you said, the changing macro environment. In relation to what they do specifically, yes, and then you add to that. I mean, momentum can be a hell of a thing, and when a bank run starts, even just the rumor, I mean, it feeds on itself and it moves fast. Yeah, there are a lot of things. I mean, we, we can't get into the Peter Thiel comments, for example, no. that kind of accelerate things. But a good bank, and you mentioned Markel as a good insurance company, a good bank is diversified in its right. assets. Right? It's not lending to one specific. Company and corporate group, or one specific types of industry. It's it's diversified across many industries, many types of borrowers. Clearly, Silicon Valley Bank was was way overdone in terms of the areas that are getting hit the hardest. And it's in the name, <laughs> Silicon <laughs> Valley Bank. I mean, it doesn't take a leap to just wonder what do they do and who do they serve. It's worked out well for them for a long time, but we're seeing the downside to, to specializing in that particular market right now, unfortunately. Yeah, someone reminded me of the uh, underrated uh, financial movie Margin Call. Oh, it's so yeah. good. And Jeremy Irons yeah. has the great line where he says, It's not panicking if you're the first one out the door. <laughs> right. um, as we wrap up on this, what should people be watching as they pl- as this plays out? I mean, I'm I don't own shares of SVB, you know. Uh, so obviously, people who do, people who have their money with it, they're paying much closer attention to this story. But as we've said, this has the potential to have ripple effects. What should the average investor be watching here? Yeah, I think I think I think one of the things that's happened is a lot of good banks. Well-capitalized banks have been thrown out with the bathwater with this one, and and so you look at just some of the, the you know some of the big major banks that have just been hit really hard. Those banks are so conservatively run; they they're so overcapitalized now because of of all the regulations that have come in since the financial crisis. So I. If you have, if you own some of those banks, I wouldn't be worried going into this weekend about you know what's going to happen to those. Yeah, I feel like you look at this from two different perspectives. One, this really uh, reminds you that size does matter, right? Big banks, you know, JP they're, Morgan's are, of the world, yeah. are going to walk out of this just fine. They're legitimately too big to fail. Right? <laughs> we've we've learned that lesson. In <laughs> um, back to diversification, yeah, it does. SVB would be considered a regional bank, and and I think you're right. You're going to see a lot of regional banks get thrown out with the bathwater here just because they're regional banks. Regional banks are not all created equal. Most are not writing books of business like Silicon Valley Absolutely not. writing, yeah. and so they they legitimately can be banks that are that are being ignored, being dismissed when they really don't have any exposure to to this type of investment at all. And they could present some 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 really interesting opportunities. But but then you know you go back to things like commercial real estate, auto. A lot of banks exposed to a lot of that exposure, and it's worth keeping that in mind. But hopefully, this is something that will be limited in its scope. Earnings news after the break, so stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. DocuSign's fourth quarter results were better than expected. Despite that, shares of DocuSign down nearly 20% on Friday. What's going on here, Jason? Well, I mean, this is a business in transition, and so we have to acknowledge that. And investors are either going to be willing to be patient and give Mr. Tegason some time, or they'll move on. Now, personally, I'm willing to be patient. I do believe this is a good business with a quality offering uh, that's playing into a clear long-term trend. But I do believe it is going to take some time uh, for for their new CEO really to get his legs underneath them and get this business going back in the right direction. It, worth noting, they did beat their own internal guidance for the quarter, a revenue of $659 million, up 14% from a year ago. Uh, they did see billings, uh, $739 million. That was up 10% from a year ago. Uh, total customer growth up 16% from the year. Enterprise customer growth, even more encouraging, up 24% for the year. And international now stands at about 25% of the business today. That grew 19% for the quarter. Uh, and, and dollar net retention at 107%, historically low. They do see some near term headwinds as they reshape this business. That's to be expected. Uh, and then adding to, to the headline, CFO Cynthia Gaylor, uh, four and a half years will be taking off. So they are looking to fill that position. It is worth noting they said in the release that Gaylor's, uh, Gaylor's planned departure is not a result of any disagreement regarding the company's financial statements or disclosures. So it really does seem like it's, it's on the level. But I think it really all goes back to the forecast here. The guide for the quarter and for the year, you're talking about high single digit revenue growth. That's a big problem. It's going to be difficult to get investors excited for that when this historically has been a growth story. Shares of Vail Resorts on a downward slope this week. Second quarter revenue was better than Wall Street was expecting, but guidance was light. And let's face it, Matt, it's expensive to operate those mountain ski resorts. It is, it is. And you said it. I mean, it's it's with Vail, it was really a top line story versus bottom line story. If you look at the top line, uh, you know, the second quarter was great, fiscal 2022. I mean, they had resort, resort net revenue was up 21%. They had record visitation. Um, if you look at the season to dates totals, they had skier visits were higher, lift revenue was higher, retail rental revenue and their North American resorts were up 21%. But it came down to earnings, and and they were mostly flat. Guidance, you said, was soft, and that's because of all the things they did last year. They they got a lot of criticism going back to the the prior winter season, where uh, you know lift lines were jammed, they didn't have enough staffing, restaurants weren't really open. It was it was kind of a COVID rush that they just weren't ready for. So they had to make a lot of investments over the past year to kind of get those resorts cranking again. That included hiring a lot of people, training, investing a lot. So it's it's really the earnings is what is going to get hit here. I would say, though, you know, it still demonstrates to me Vail's got pricing power. Once these investments kind of run through it, I think they're going to get back on you know a higher earnings trajectory. They did raise the dividend eight percent, which I always love to see. They upped the share repurchase authorization. Um, so, me as a shareholder of Vail, I come away thinking, you know, I'm, I might be interested in buying more of this, not less, especially with the shares down. The lipstick effect working for the benefit of Ulta Beauty. Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. Uh, Jason, as a category, beauty products have really held up over the past six to twelve months, and you see it when you look at uh, Ulta Beauty's stock chart. Well, you hit you hit exactly on what I wanted to lead with is that something we've we've I think a lot of us have been saying for a while. Beauty is just a very resilient market. Anecdotally, I can tell you, I mean, over the holiday season, I, I went to an Ulta store personally, physically went into the store to go get a gift card for my daughter. I mean, that place was a zoo. Very, very friendly customer service, especially for a dope like me who knows nothing about makeup. <laughs> um, but when you look at the numbers, it's really impressive what this business is doing. I mean, net revenue three point two billion dollars. 
That was up 18.2% from a year ago, with comps up 15.6%, and gross margin holding steady in this environment, which I think is really encouraging. Uh, they did see a 13.6% increase in transactions driven by traffic. Now, they did see the average ticket uh, just increase 1.8%, so still pretty light. But you know, when we look at the companies like Home Depot and Lowe's earlier, a lot of those tickets were down. So it's, it's again encouraging to see that that ticket holding holding there, and they now have more than 40 million ultimate reward members versus 37 million just a year ago. So it is it is a good business that does something very specific. It knows what it's doing. I mean, they are growing not only the physical footprint, but the digital footprint as well. Uh, strong balance sheet, continue to bring that share count down. This, this is one that's worked out pretty well. Shares of Dick's Sporting Goods up 12% uh, with a strong close to the fiscal year. Same store sales in the fourth quarter were more than double what analysts had expected. And guidance for 2023 was better than what we've seen out of a lot of other retailers, Matt. Yeah, I mean, it turns out whether it's Cosmetics or sports equipment. I mean, <laughs> people like to go out and, and, and shop, and it's 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 something I you know Dick Sporting Goods. When I think about it, it, was one of those retailers that I thought wrongly, you know, especially post pandemic, that you know it's just one of those ones that could go out the door. I mean, it's just it's it's a tough spot to be in if you're a retailer like this. But Dick's has done incredibly well. Uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the results. I mean, earnings were up. Uh, they're pro- projecting earnings, I, I should say, to be up 20% this year. They more than doubled the dividend. By the way, and and they they kind of couched it by saying we have strong conviction in our structurally higher sales and earnings. So this is a business that I'm I'm amazed and impressed. But they are certainly on an upward trajectory, and I think it tells a greater story. Having talked about Ulta as well, that brick and mortar retail is still quite attractive. A lot of customers are going. There's traffic is high. We've seen you know if you look at Simon Property Group, the, the biggest mall owner, their results as well. It paints a, a customer that likes to go out and shop. Well, and this comes, we talked about this all earnings season, the cautious guidance coming from so many really high-level businesses. The fact that Dick's Sporting Goods is putting forth the guidance, doing what they're doing with the dividend in an environment when a lot of other strong retailers are saying, we're going to be really cautious here. Right. No, no, it's, 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 it's great to see that confidence. And so, and maybe it could be a specialty story, maybe, but um, no, I think it speaks to you know, a greater story about retail, which is doing well. And as we know from the jobs report, that's where the jobs tend to be going. All right, Matt Argus here and Jason Moser, guys, we will see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, what's the best version of stock buybacks? And what should people expect Sunday night at the Academy Awards? We're going to ask our guest, Nell Minow. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. By day, Nell Minow is the vice chair of Value Edge Advisors. By night, she is a film critic, which means she technically qualifies as a superhero leading a double life. She joins me now from her home in Virginia. Nell, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I want to talk about the business of movies and, of course, the Academy Awards, but I do want to start with share buybacks because this is a topic highly relevant to investors, very much in the headlines lately, in part because of 
President Biden at the State of the Union address talking about increasing the tax on corporations, partly because of Warren Buffett, who you and I and many other investors are big fans of, in his latest annual letter, taking a pretty for him, a kind of a spicy shot at critics of share buyback plans. And it seems like there is some level of recognition that this is something that could stand improvement. And I guess my question for you is, what do you think is the prescription for improving share buyback plans as a structure? Well, I wrote an article called A Capitalist Solution to the Problem of Excessive Buybacks. So it's something I've given a lot of thought to. The last thing you want to do is try to fix it through the tax code because corporations are happy to pass along those costs to employees, shareholders, customers. Uh, it will have no effect on them whatsoever. And buybacks can be a very good discipline. Uh, if you got excess cash, I would a thousand times rather that you. Uh, buy back stock or declare a special dividend rather than making a stupid acquisition, which is what too many companies will do. Uh, unfortunately, it's gotten completely out of hand. It's short-term uh, financial engineering. And the two things that I would do are, first of all, you do not let the executives sell into a buyback. The whole idea of the buyback is they're telling you the stock is undervalued. So why are they selling at that price? Uh, I think it creates a tremendous moral hazard and a tremendous lack of credibility. And the other thing is, it drives me nuts when it looks like the company's not going to be meeting the EPS targets and therefore not triggering the bonus. What are we going to do? I know, we'll buy back some stock. So there are you know, two numbers in that calculus. There is the the earnings, and then there is the number of shares. There's only one of those numbers that is really beneficial to shareholders. So I would certainly, uh, those are two ways that game the system to allow the executives to sell into it and to not adjust the um, the, the earnings per share uh, incentive goals. And I think if we fix those two things, then we'll we'll you know lower the pilot light a little bit on making uh, buybacks so attractive. I want to go back to something you said about acquisitions, because yes, a lot of acquisitions don't work out. And something we talk about on the show from time to time is how capital allocation is such an important skill for executives. But it's one of those things that's pretty difficult to recognize in a potential CEO when he or she is being interviewed, because it's a track record that reveals itself over time. As you indicated, there are companies that do a very good disciplined job of returning value to shareholders, either through dividends or buyback plans. There are others who, put aside the acquisitions, they do a bad job at share buyback plans. Um, all of this is context for this question. You have spent so much of your career um, working for organizations that are advising boards of directors. Is there a way to get at someone's capital allocation skill level? Like, how do boards find out that information? Because, again, it's such an important skill. And I don't see how it reveals itself unless you have five years of a track record for a CEO before you can say, wow, he or she is really good or really bad at this. Well, 
I will just take issue a little bit with one thing you said. It's really the job of the board to oversee asset allocation. It's kind of a forest and trees thing. And I think the executives tend to look at the trees and you really need the board to look at the forest. When people say to me, well, we have excess cash, what they're saying to me is we have no idea of what we're doing because we literally pay them the big bucks so that they can figure out what to do with that cash. If they can't find a way to make better products, to improve operations, to do better on employee retention and training, then okay, give the give the cash back to the shareholders, but that's not going to help us in the long run. So you do need a track record to figure out about asset allocation. On the other hand, if what they're saying to you is we have no imagination and we're just going to give you back this cash and let you decide what to do with it, that gives you a little bit of an indicator. We are investors. We don't really pay a lot of attention to politics, except when it enters into the realm of investing. And we just talked about one area with share buybacks, but another area has come up. Uh, with uh, President Biden uh, saying he plans to issue the first veto of his presidency because um, the Senate has overturned a Labor Department rule that permits fiduciary retirement fund managers to consider ESG factors in their investment decisions. Um, Obviously, there are ramifications here for uh, retirement and pension plans uh, across the country. Uh, when you watch this drama playing out on Capitol Hill, what's your reaction? If you had told me when I got into this business that someday a corporate governance matter would become the subject of not just a veto, but the very first presidential veto of an administration, I would have thought you were nuts. Not that I didn't think that these are important issues. I just couldn't believe they would become as politicized as they have. You know, It's really important to make clear that the ESG rule that is at issue here doesn't say you have to consider, you investment managers have to look at ESG. It says you may wish to include these to the extent that they are material. It makes it very, very, very clear that we're talking about quantifiable uh, economic forecasts, financial indicators. Nobody is asking you to do something to warm the cockles of your heart. And yet ESG has become kind of the new a critical race theory. It has just become a woke. It's become something uh, that is uh, a, a just a, a subject of a tremendous misinformation campaign funded by the oil companies and the Koch brothers, and and that's too bad because it is it is a simple, straightforward way of saying, gosh, maybe the accounting standards that we've had since the days when most of the company's assets were machinery and real estate. And we don't value uh, intellectual property. We don't value political risk very well. We don't value climate risk very well. Maybe we should look at some other indicators to try to figure out how to do a better job. Looking back, we missed the financial meltdown. We missed the dot com. We missed you know the accounting scandals. Maybe we could do a better job. And all of a sudden now, that is considered to be woke. It has nothing to do with being woke. It has to do with doing uh, a, getting a clearer picture of risk and return. Before we get to the Oscars, let's talk about. Uh to me, a pretty interesting story in the business of movies, and in particular movie theaters, which is AMC, the largest movie theater chain in America, has started testing dynamic pricing in some of its theaters with a plan to roll it out nationwide by the end of the year. What is your reaction to this? Because my reaction is, I'm not outraged by this. This is something that has gone on forever. 
uh, in live sports, in concerts, at Broadway shows. Uh, There are people who are outraged by this. What's your reaction? I wouldn't say that I'm outraged. I'm a little disappointed. Normally, I am a fan of Adam Aaron, the CEO. And um, there's a big difference between a Broadway show, a sporting event, and a concert, which is that you are watching a live performance, and it really does matter where you sit in the theater. Uh, You want to be up close. You want to be in the back. You'll get. You want to be in the left or the right. You'll get a different perspective. In a movie theater, I think you know the last thing we need right now is a reason for people to stay home. We want to get people to come to the theater, and uh, therefore, I just don't think it's a good idea. I don't think that the beta test is going to work out very well, and I hope they drop it. Oh yeah, I should also say I don't think this is necessarily going to work for them. I just wasn't outraged by it. In terms of the Academy Awards. Am I am I wrong to assume the ratings are going to be a little higher this year? Should Disney shareholders get excited about more people watching the ABC broadcast? Because I don't know. Last year there was uh, um, the rare. I can't believe I'm watching this live moment when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Yeah, but a few years before that, we had the I can't believe I'm watching a moment where they literally announced the wrong best picture. Uh, There's always going to be some water cooler comment. And yet I think most people will wait to watch those clips on YouTube. Uh, I just think the way we interact with live events on television has changed. I think there's awards fatigue. I mean, for gosh sakes, I will be watching. You know, we call that mommy's Super Bowl in our house and no one's allowed to talk to me while while the Oscars are on. I'm pretty hardcore and I'm also old. So I think that it, it, the Oscars have not figured out a way to connect with, I'm just going to say, the TikTok generation. Uh, they've got some great uh, presenters. They're going to have some wonderful song numbers, but I just don't think the ratings are going to be that great this year. So Alphabet shareholders maybe get a little excited. Uh, let's get to the three uh, three of the biggest awards. And as always, as we do every year, you tell me who you think should win and who will win. We'll start with Best Actor. Again, last year, this was the category everybody talked about uh, because of Will Smith. Am I correct that all five of these nominees are first-time Oscar nominees? I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. Now, if it were, yeah, okay. So you want to know who I think should win, and I'm going to pick the least likely person to win. Who's that? That's Bill Nye. I thought Living was one of my favorite films from last year, and it's extraordinary story, extraordinary history behind the movie. Bill Nye, he broke your heart a thousand times. He's a fabulous actor. I would love to see him win. Nobody saw that movie. That would be my choice. I think will win. That's a tough one, but I think it's going to be Brendan Fraser because nobody loves a comeback story more than the Oscar voters. And everybody loves him. They love the fact that he is being taken seriously right now. He's going to cry all over the stage. They love that. And so I I think I did not love the movie, but I loved his performance. And I do think he's great. I have to tell you, I think something really funny. I found on the internet yesterday, there was a movie that Brendan Fraser was in where he played a thawed out prehistoric guy called Encino Man. It was a Pauly Shore movie. The classic comedy Encino Man. But one of his co-stars in that movie is also nominated for an Oscar this year, Ki Huang Kwan from uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And there's a great clip of the two of them together in the movie. And apparently Pauly Shore has been saying, where's my Oscar nomination? Everybody in my movie got nominated but me. 
That's what one of the great things about the movies. You know, you never would have thought Encino Man would produce two Oscar nominees, but here we are. In the Best Actress category, great performances across the board, but this seems like a two-person race between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh. And I'll tell you something fascinating about both of those roles. They were both written for men. Really? Yes. Both scripts originally envisioned the main character to be a man, and that tells you a lot about what the different opportunities are for male and female performers in the uh, wonderful world of Hollywood. So uh, the fact that these women took those roles, gave their whole selves to them, made such ferocious, layered, wonderful performances, I think Kate Blanchett has two Oscars already, so I'm kind of I'm hoping for Michelle Yeoh both should win and will win, and uh, it will be thrilling uh, when she gets up to accept that award. In the Best Picture category, there are ten films nominated. If the betting odds are any indication, Everything Everywhere All at Once looks like the overwhelming favorite here. There's no question about it. It's won all the preliminary awards, uh, including the single best uh, leading indicator, the Directors Guild Award. And uh, I can't say uh, uh, enough good things about it. It is a brilliant, imaginative, wonderful film. If it doesn't both dazzle you and make you cry, then you don't have a heart. It is just a, a fabulous film, and I'd love to see the uh, the Hollywood establishment honor something so innovative. There are a lot of categories, so let's end with this. Fill in the blank. Don't be surprised if... Our, our, our wins best song. You know, best song is the worst category every year just because of the way the nominations work. And in my opinion, and I follow my, my great mentor and idol, Roger Ebert, on this, you should not be allowed to nominate a song unless it's actually in the movie. Over the credits doesn't count. There couldn't be a better example than Not To Not To in RRR, a fabulous song in a great movie, beautiful dance number. And so don't be surprised. You may never have heard of RRR or Not To Not To, but you will hear about it on Sunday night. One of the best reasons to be on Twitter is so you can follow Nell Minow, get her thoughts on corporate governance, movies, and a lot more. Nell, enjoy Mommy's Super Bowl. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Coming up after the break, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger return. They got a couple of stocks on their radar, so stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again in studio with Matt Argusinger and Jason Moser. The bumper music you hear on the show is courtesy of our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd. And speaking of music, the Wall Street Journal reporting this week that for the first time since 1987, vinyl albums outsold compact discs. And guys, it wasn't close. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, there were 41 million albums sold in 2022, compared to just 33 million compact discs. 
this warms my aged heart, man. <laughs> no, it's 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 awesome. It was obviously that was before my time, but I have to say, when I look at the vinyl records that my parents had and, and uh, my wife's parents had, and they're they're awesome, they're beautiful, and I want to I want to learn more about them, collect them maybe, and keep them. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Man behind the glass, Dan Boyd's going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, taking a look at a company called Interdigital, ticker is IDCC. Uh, Interdigital is a research and development company with a primary focus on wireless technologies, so that plays right into the services that I'm running here at The Fool. But the technology itself um, is, is everywhere, including smartphones, consumer electronics, IoT products, televisions, laptops, gaming consoles, yada, 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 right? I mean, this is a, a company that makes money from licensing its patented uh, technology and innovations to customers all over the world. And at the end of 2022, they actually held a portfolio of approximately 28,800 patents and applications related to wireless communications, video coding, display technology, yada, yada, yada. Uh, So, this seems like a lot of patents, Dan. So, I'm going to dig in and uh, see if there's a real business here. Dan, question about interdigital? Absolutely. Jason, is this the kind of company that just sits on patents, or is this the kind of company that actually does its own research and development? A little bit of both, but mostly they are in the business of collecting that book of patents and then uh, extracting value from said patents. Matt Argensinger, what are you looking at? All right, it's Global Industrial Company, ticker GIC. I know it sounds like some kind of front for like an evil corporation or something, but <laughs> it absolutely does. <laughs> but they're actually a distributor of, of uh, what's called maintenance, repair, and operating equipment (MRO). Uh, they're one of the leading companies to do that, uh, mostly serving small, mid-sized businesses. So think like storage equipment, janitorial supplies, safety devices. Basic things businesses really need to run um, their everyday business. Uh, they actually supply over one million MRO items, uh, and they also have some of their own private label products as well. Very cash flow heavy business, three percent dividend. Love it. Dan, question about Global Industrial Company. Yeah, so I, I guess you didn't want to invest in the Acme Corporation this week, <laughs> did you? It was it was on my watch list, Dan, but I went with Global Industrial instead this oh, week. Well, all right. Well, at least you have a pretty clear choice in terms of two very different businesses, Dan. You got a stock you want to add to your watch list? Well, I mean, yes. And it's interdigital. And it's not because I'm super impressed by them, it's just that. Matt picked the, you know, the uh, personification of the color beige for a company here. <laughs> How surprised are you that it's not Ron Gross putting forth this stock? You know, I'm I'm actually more surprised at Jason's pick because Interdigital apparently has been around since 1972, uh, and is as old economy as you get when it comes to tech companies. All right, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. Drop us an email, podcasts at fool.com. That's podcasts with an S on the end, podcasts at fool.com. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.